This is Aisle 42. Plant-based eating is a great way to reduce our carbon footprint. But for those of us who are only plant curious or reluctant vegans or awkward flexitarians, this changeup requires some adult supervision. So I chatted with Miyoko Shinner, a chef, best-selling author, vegan cheese pioneer, and a plant-based dairy expert to explore ways that we can demystify whole food meal prep and lean into animal-free living without all the emotional baggage. In this episode, you'll learn about the science behind dairy-free cheese, the power of community-based food systems, meal making as an act of connection, animal activism and education, and how protein deficiencies in vegan diets is total hogwash. There's actually a lot packed into this one. The discussion is raw and honest, and you're going to love it. Here's the vegan cheese queen herself, Miyoko Shinner. Miyoko, in the food industry, and for those plugged into a vegan lifestyle, your legend precedes you, but I'm suspicious that there's still a lot of conscious consumers out there that haven't yet caught wind of everything that you've done and everything that you're doing to fix the broken food system. So thank you so much for joining me. Uh, where are you calling in from today? I am from uh, the little town of Nicasio, which is in West Marin in California, about 45 minutes north of San Francisco. That's awesome. Now, I have a confession for you. Okay. I like confessions. <laughs> They're very exciting. So I reached out to you with this podcast invite, you know, maybe a couple months ago, and I've been doing my homework ever since, building a list of questions as, you know, a responsible person would do. Last week, I looked at my list and it was over three pages long, which is not fair. And we don't have that kind of time. Isn't that terrifying? So I'm going to put some constraints on this conversation and we're going to stay focused on two areas, the grocery store and future generations. Oh, Okay. And familiar to our listeners is my first question. Miyoko, if you were to imagine the perfect grocery store of the future, what would it look like? Well, it wouldn't be today's supermarkets. In fact, I believe I am becoming radical in my idea of how do we sell food to consumers? How do we produce food that's not only benefiting consumers, but the actual producers themselves? And the idea of having one convenient location where people can go and just get all their shopping done in one place. That sounds wonderful. And I know that it's very appealing to all of us that are trying to save time and all of that, but it's actually creating havoc for producers, for consumers. It's allowing the 10 largest food corporations to control what we buy. And so for me, the future food system, the future grocery store would be sort of like the grocery stores of your localized. Maybe there's every community has a bakery where they sell bread. And then there's a, a store that sells, I don't know, um, it could be animal dairy and plant dairy products, or it could be a vegetable store. When I lived in Tokyo back in the 1980s, um, it's interesting, but even in the 1980s in an industrial modernized city like Tokyo, people didn't have large refrigerators in their homes. They had small refrigerators and you went shopping every day or two. And shopping meant you literally went down your block and you stopped at the vegetable store, you stopped at the tofu store, you stopped at the, I don't know, the, the bakery and you picked up what you needed for the next couple of days. It was a very, very simple life. And I really do believe that we have to go back to a system like that. 
because we're not understanding because our love of convenience, we are not understanding the impact that the middleman, the supermarket has. The supermarket, the distributors, all of this. And it's creating havoc in the entire food system that I don't think people are aware of. But as they become aware of it, I think they're going to understand why we have to overthrow that system. So I'm starting out with a very radical concept. Sorry. Yeah. When you say the word overthrow, I lean in because, uh, yeah, it's right on brand. Excellent. It's a decentralization of the food system. That's a good way to put it. It sounds beautiful. It sounds, it has its own level of complication, but I think when, when all of us have had those opportunities where, where shopping is more of a, a destination, it's more of a journey, it can be really exciting. It can really be inspiring, can't it? Yes. Yes. It's an experience. I mean, if, you know, it's like going to the farmer's market. I mean, 20 years ago, we didn't even have farmer's markets, I don't believe. And then they made a comeback and my local farmer's market is packed every single Thursday and Sunday. And we need more of that. We need them every day. We need them all over the place. We need markets. Uh, I remember going to Turkey and there's this huge pavilion with all these local producers inside selling things every single day. And it was packed full of locals, full of tourists, because it's such an experience to shop like that, to be able to buy directly from the person who's making something. There's a story to be told. There's a connection to be made. You get a sense of community. You get a sense of humanity. And that has been taken out of the food system. Well said, Yoko. You know how the police have ride-alongs where civilians can join them in the car and witness a day in the life? I got to wondering, if you were to walk alongside a mom or a dad who's shopping, you know, they're doing their weekly shopping trip, and they've never seriously considered organic ingredients or plant-based eating, much less veganism, what would you say to them? What would you grab off the shelf and talk to them about and inspire them about to get them to explore different kinds of meal prep for their family? That's a really, really great question. And when you are so involved in the food system like I am, especially one aspect of it, you can get on your high horse and really turn people off. And so that's something that I always have to watch out for is is how do I communicate with people? So if I were to go shopping with a mom or dad, I would hope that they would be open-minded people, not that I'm forcing myself on them. So if they've invited me to come along, I assume they're open-minded and I would really, like many articles say, you know, try to steer them to the perimeter of the store to where you can get the fresh produce. I would really encourage them to go back to basics, to buying things that are not in packages, the bulk section, to lean into the magic that can happen in their own kitchen by buying whole grains and beans and legumes and vegetables and really cooking from scratch. I would pick up a package, let's say something like ketchup, and I would show them the ingredients and I would say, you know, you can make this at home in five minutes. And I would demystify so many of the foods that we have come to take for granted must only be bought, that they cannot be made by, you know, from scratch at home. And, and we're scared. It's like we go home and, oh my God, I couldn't, I couldn't make that. I mean, I remember growing up at a time when everyone bought bottled salad dressing. I don't know if people do today. I know more and more people are now just making simple vinaigrettes and salad dressings at home. But back in the 1960s and 70s, we were all, people were all buying salad dressing. We had bought this notion that you couldn't make your own salad dressing. 
that it had to come in a bottle from the store. And somehow we got over that because we learned that they're made out of very simple ingredients that you can actually master at home in about five minutes. And so we can do that with so many other packaged ingredients, uh, packaged products. We can realize that all of these actually initiated somehow in the home or in someone's, you know, some grandma's kitchen. And we can go back to doing that without spending hours and hours in the kitchen every single day. So many different things, like whether it's mustard or ketchup or mayonnaise or uh, some packaged bar, a lot of this, you know, can come together within minutes in your own kitchen. And so really demystifying packaged foods so that we can reclaim them for ourselves out of whole natural ingredients and know what we actually put into it, I think would be the magic that I would want to impart. That'd be fun. Man, I'd love to, I'd love to do a walk along with you in the grocery store. When it comes to veganism, is protein that primary barrier to someone exploring it? Is that, is that the one thing that sort of gets the most noise or is there other areas that maybe I'm being too simplistic with it, but I feel like protein always sort of comes up and it always comes up with some spit and nails. Okay. Yeah. Protein always comes up. We have embraced that macronutrient as being the most important macronutrient that humans need for, for health. And it's, uh, yeah, it is an important macronutrient, but we obsess about it and it's absurd. I've been vegan for, I don't know, since the mid 1980s. So how long is that? 40 years. I never think about protein. Never. And the fact is protein is a macronutrient in just about every single natural food. As long as it's not a highly processed food like sugar, there's protein. And the fact is most, the average American consumes twice as much protein as they actually need. And not only that is actually good for health. It's too much protein that can lead to other complications. We don't have a condition called protein deficiency as, has anyone ever heard of that in does anyone ever go to the doctor for protein deficiency? It doesn't exist. So this is a complete myth that I've heard stories that it originated in animal agriculture, in the meat industry, et cetera. I don't know what the real story is, but the fact is, is it is a myth. It's not true. You, as long as you're getting enough calories and eating real food, not potato chips and candy bars, you're going to get enough protein. Now, if you're an athlete, you may have to think a little harder about it, but you can still do that easily by just honing in on whole food, whole plant foods, you know, making sure you're eating your legumes and, and that sort of thing. You know, in, uh, in our family lifestyle, I have a, a nine-year-old daughter. And so things like, you know, pasta are, <laughs> are, is a meal that she loves and we love as a family. And we buy a sourdough pasta and it has a lot of protein in it. Naturally, there's just plenty of protein. There's no need to throw, you know, meat on that, on that pasta because it doesn't need it. And when, uh, especially in this case with this sourdough pasta, it's, I'm energized by it. We love eating it and it's easy on our stomach because of those, the, the um, fermentations aside of the equation. Breaks down the lectins. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. So I feel like... I don't get into the protein battles myself very often, but when I hear about them happening in the, in the peripheral, I'm like, I get my, the hairs on the back of my neck go up. I'm like, Ooh, <laughs> someone's gonna, someone's gonna get angry, but it's uh, it's interesting. I like how you said the, you know, we don't go for protein deficiency <laughs> appointments at our doctor. No, no. I mean, <laughs> so you've pioneered vegan cheese making transforming the category from rubbery and laughable to creamy and delicious. 
what's the next animal-based food category that's on your vegan radar these days? Well, I think that's one of the problems, to be honest, is that we're always trying to replicate animal foods. And this is a recent phenomenon. And this is the other thing is that we humans are at a certain point in history, and we think this is the way it's been for all of history. And the fact is, we didn't eat this much meat or dairy until the last century. For most of humankind, we evolved eating mostly plant foods. Meat was a special occasion thing, something that you ate for a celebration. I mean, remember, we didn't have refrigeration. So unless you were making jerky, what were you going to do when you killed a large animal? I mean, it went to feed the entire village. And then you might not eat that again for a while. And it was easier to grow crops. And so this is another myth that we have to dispel. We also have to remember, even in more recent periods in the last century, there are plenty of countries whether uh, Asian countries, African countries, where they were still eating predominantly a plant-based diet. And meat was this sort of, it, it was considered, you know, the pinnacle of food that when you reach a certain economic status, you could have on a more regular basis. And so as we become wealthier countries, we have increased our consumption of animal products. So the question I have to ask is, is that the right direction? Like maybe we should have a new paradigm where we make plants sexy and and hot you know and it's kind of beginning to happen with like who doesn't love brussels sprouts when they go out to a restaurant you know it's not your grandma's boiled brussels sprouts it's it's cooked with all kinds of things i had them last night at a restaurant they were i guess sauteed with golden raisins and balsamic vinegar and it was just like they were so delicious and juicy i mean who doesn't love that anymore so we can do that with more foods and stop trying to replicate. On the other hand, I also feel like there isn't there's exciting work to be done in terms of taking whole plant foods and making things that are meaty or creamy, not isolating proteins and adding a bunch of gums and fillers and and things that can only be done in a lab, but in your own kitchen. You can make a quote unquote something like a ground beef I mean, there was something chewy out of things like walnuts and mushrooms, very simple whole ingredients that any consumer can make that satisfies. Right now I am writing a new cookbook and it's called The Vegan Creamery and it's about all things plant dairy, but I've discovered new ways to make cheese and out of traditional dairy making, I mean, like beyond what I was doing before. So out of ingredients that uh, are very different from what I use it for. So I'm, I start out with seeds and legumes. I make a milk and then I found ways to coagulate it and then ferment it and then drain it and then compress it into a cheese, just like traditional cheese making. So this is sort of, it's fun to discover that plants can do things that we thought only animal products could do. So that there's an excitement. There's a part of me that's very creative and I'm always thinking about what can I do with this? And so that's exciting and it's really fun. That being said, I'm very happy making lentil soup. And if you make it right, I mean, people that feel like they can only have a burger will go, wow, that's delicious too. So there's a world of plants out there to, waiting to be discovered, whether it's Brussels sprouts or cauliflower steak or a really good bean soup. And we don't need to constantly mimic animal products. That's well said. I, I appreciate the way you say that. Now, it's a little unfair because you're a chef, but most of our homes have kitchens that are sort of the center of the domestic life. They are open 
We often are eating in our kitchen at our counters. The kitchen is not tucked away from the dining room where when we were younger, that was more common. I feel like this type of cooking, this exploration, this playfulness in the kitchen, it's sort of primed by maybe maybe it's cookbooks. I mean, cookbook, what an amazing category, uh, you know, in the in the publishing world, cookbooks are wildly popular. You've done three already. So you're- no, I've done six. six. You six? six? Yeah. I mean, my first cookbook was written in 1990. So it was a long time ago before all of this. So, so I only know of three of them. So you win. That's That's amazing. When it comes to influencers and ingredient trends and sort of some of the stuff that happens on social media, which definitely can prime the pump for people. Do you see that as helping the cause? Do you see it as creating overwhelm? What's sort of your take on this spin around ingredients and social media sharing around food? Yeah, well, first of all, I want to point out, I love what you just said about the kitchen is central to most families today, in most homes today. I think we should really emphasize that. So let's celebrate the fact that the kitchen is the hearth of the, the, the family home. And let's spend more time in there. And let's make cooking together with family and friends an activity that we can embrace and enjoy as we discover new recipes. I think it's wonderful that there are so many influencers and people cooking today. I mean, this material... We didn't have this access. We had cookbooks. And then Julia Child came up with, I believe, the very first cooking show ever on t- television. And now, you know, we have celebrity chefs and it's, it's a real thing. Like we are obsessed with cooking more. At the same time, some people are cooking less and buying all prepackaged foods. So this is an opportunity. I think there's, a, there's an undercurrent that is signaling us to get back into our kitchens and start cooking. But less as a solitary activity, more as a communal activity. I occasionally have cooking parties where we come together and we all make something, you know, we, we cook together. We don't just, it's not just like me cooking for everybody. Like we, I have my friends come over and we make a dinner together. And like in the old days, you know, women used to sit around and they would, they would make um, tamales or, uh, for, or they would make pasta or whatever. And they would all be sitting there gabbing and talking and, or, you know, plucking um, fresh snap peas or whatever. And that becomes the activity. You don't have to be sitting there noshing on fancy appetizers and having a glass of wine. You can actually just sit around a kitchen counter, making something together, gabbing, And it's so much more fun. And when that meal comes together, it's so much more delicious. So we need more of that. And so I'm I'm glad we're in a culture where food is and cooking are becoming more prominent. You know, whether or not all the recipes work, that's another issue. But the fact is uh, people are talking about cooking again. And so I feel like maybe that is an undercurrent that's fighting against this notion of quick, convenient foods that we eat you know, in front of our computers by ourselves. Like we need to make cooking a communal activity again, because part of food is about community. And that has completely gone by the wayside. It started with TV dinners and now, you know, and then drive-throughs, you eat in your car, you eat in front of your computer, you eat while you're watching TV. Let's make preparing food and eating together the thing that the social activity for the next decade. Yeah, it's uh, 
it has this entertainment value, doesn't it? When everyone's in the kitchen, everyone's helping out. In a family setting, it can be really hard to transition meals away from the familiar to something new. You know, taking in consideration of everyone's sort of taste and texture preferences and allergies and sensitivities. In my own home, my my 10-year-old daughter, uh, we, you know, we're encouraging her to try things and try things again. And whether she spits them out or whatever, we just, you know, kind of take the moment to celebrate the fact that she tried. So it's a process. We're trying to involve her now in cooking. I started her with a plastic knife and now she's graduated to a, a real knife. And in fact, we made Brussels sprouts last night and she helped prepare the Brussels sprouts. And then she ate the Brussels sprouts because they were something that she participated in. So that's really important. Yeah. And and I have three adult grown children. So I remember when they were growing up too. But I think one of the problems is that in Western countries, there's a problem of having too much choice. And when you think about historically, people ate what was available. Like you, you didn't say, well, I only want plain pasta with butter because that wasn't an option. Or I only want mac and cheese, you know, Kraft's mac and cheese. I think part of the problem is when I remember from other parents, oftentimes they have this notion that there's kids' food and adult food. And so you have to prepare kids' food for them. And so they start out with that. And then that's kind of what becomes a norm rather than everyone eats the same thing. I mean, imagine in India or Africa or even Japan where I grew up, you didn't have different foods. Like everybody ate the same food. You didn't have the, the luxury of saying, I want that instead of this. And so I think that's part of the problem. You know, we live at a very distorted time in history, I think, that is potentially harming more than just our health, but the planet, our sense of community, our sense of family. And so there's a lot to think about. I'm not saying I have the answers. You know, my, my kids went through periods of, you know, I don't like this either, but, but it happened usually later after they got acclimated to, to food amongst their friends, but not early in life. So I've been following you for a while and have seen kind of time and time again that you're not afraid to dive headfirst into any conversation. Veganism for you is a form of activism. And the younger generations coming up behind us, they're smart, they're concerned. And more than really any other era, our children are turning away from animal products because of the ethics. And to that end, I am so inspired by your Rancho Compassion Project, where you guys are rescuing farm animals, commercial farm animals. What is it about these places of refuge, these animals that are no longer being mistreated, no longer destined for early slaughter? What is it about this place and this work that you guys are doing that's creating a platform for activism so that people can think about their food differently? Well, uh, truth be told, Rancho Compassion, um, Farmed Animal Sanctuary that I started in 2015, has shifted its focus. Um, yes, we are these animals that we've rescued, and we rescued um, two Maui pigs recently, two pigs that were the farm shut down, the fire burnt, went through, the mama pig went into a pond the next day, gave birth to these piglets. Um, there were a whole bunch of them, and... Um, a rescue reached out to us because the farmer decided not to go back into business and they flew two little piglets out to, to us. So we, we are, okay, I'm digressing. What I want to say is that the purpose of Rancho Compassion is to inspire change in people's hearts. And to that end, we've started a, an education program 
So we have about 50 kids, students coming every single week. We have an after-school program. We have school field trips. We have kids, kids from all kinds of schools. We have a, we have kids from a school, a school for kids with disabilities and on the spectrum. We have another one at risk kids um, that come with chaperones. And um, we have an organic garden as well, too. So what happens is kids learn about animal care. They learn about these, these animals that have been rescued. And when they, they're taken out of these situations, they blossom. Many of them do. Sometimes it takes time. Sometimes they're traumatized. Just like, you know, you might experience a dog that's maybe been traumatized in the past and it takes a while for that dog to feel comfortable in your own home. Same thing with some of these animals and others just completely open up. And you begin to see them as individuals, just like you would see your own dogs which is really exciting. And you see their personalities and, and how intelligent they are. But we don't preach. We never talk about veganism. But we have all these kids that come here and they, you know, like regularly in the after-school program or whatever. They spend time with kids. They might take care of an aging sheep who's got a, um, a bad leg and help administer some sort of therapy to her and calm her down. And then they go and get their hands uh, dirty in the soil in our organic garden and plant vegetables and harvest them. And naturally they start to make this connection that all oh, these animals are my friends and food comes out of this garden and we don't have to say anything. And so we've got kids ranging from seven years old through high school participating in different ways. And really that is our focus is how do we change hearts and minds in a gentle fashion by just introducing them to the inner lives of animals and telling them about and teaching them about the food system and regenerating the soil, native plant, native crops. We have those as well. So that's what our focus at Rancho Compassion. Very cool. All right. Thank I appreciate that clarification, but uh, gosh, it, what an amazing opportunity it is to inspire and teach and encourage and support kids through that process. It's beautiful. For my last question, Yoko, I first off, your YouTube channel is a riot. It's so casual and so welcoming. I really love what you guys are doing with that. So so uh, it's the vegan good life, I think, right? Thank is you. Vegan good life. The vegan good life with Miyoko. Yeah, it's just, it's, it's scrappy. You know, there's no, I don't have a budget. So my daughter's friend videotapes me and edits it. <laughs> And oftentimes I don't even have an agenda. And she'll like, she'll say, Hey, um, I could film you tomorrow. And I'm like, Oh, okay. Let me see what I got in my fridge. And it's, so it's like just kind of thrown together that, you know, it's, it's very real, we'll put it that way. And, and my goal, like I was talking about before, my goal is to take the mystery out of, of cooking and to get people relaxed in the kitchen, you know, that it doesn't have to be perfect. I am the master of dropping things and spilling things. If you watch a few of my episodes, you will see it more than once that has its entertainment value i have to admit so if i was to follow you around with a camera i would love to go grocery shopping with you but what i'm really curious about if you were to have your hand basket what are some of the products what are some of the food brands maybe give a shout out to a couple brands that you really appreciate uh, what they've done what are some of the things that you would be putting in your grocery cart that people might be able to find in their local grocery store well i would Steer them to something like Rancho Gordo's selection of heirloom beans. So Rancho Gordo is a brand that has begun to grow these beautiful heirloom beans at a time where we have, as an agricultural movement, we have moved towards commodity crops and GMOs and decrease the diversity. And Rancho Gordo is a wonderful company that has 
really great packaging as well too. I mean, they're, they're, it's great marketing, but they have all sorts of beans that you've never, ever heard of. And so they've revived them, they're growing them, they're packaging them. So I'm really excited about them. You can get a subscription package with them. I also love smaller brands that are, that are using clean ingredients. For example, if you're drinking almond milk, it's expensive, but there's a brand called Three Trees and uh, started by an Asian woman. And you hear about, oh, there's, you know, three almonds in a glass of almond milk. So Three Trees actually makes it with a lot of almonds. So you're actually getting the nutrition of almonds. You're not just drinking, you know, a watery almond beverage. So I look for, for things like that, that are, that are cleaner, that are supporting companies that I believe are ethical as well. Would you say the B Corp certification is one of the things that you're looking for? Yes and no. I think there is some greenwashing with B Corp certifications, but I, for the most part, you know, definitely it's a, it's very, very hard to get B Corp certification. You have, there's so many different facets you have to think about. It's not just about sustainability. It's about um, whether you're paying a fair wage and so many other aspects as well too, and you, whether or not you you can prove this stuff. So I think what I mean by greenwashing is not so much by by B Corp themselves, but you know companies that might I don't know manipulate <laughs> information, and so you know it's hard to know. But I I think the intent is good, and I think B Corp has changed their their mode of investigation over time and become more expansive and rigorous at the same time. So I think, yeah, looking out for B Corp, oh, uh, world, this is not food, world-centric products that, that makes like paper plates and things like that. That's a really great, you know, I, that's, a, that's something that it's all compostable. Um, their, their plastic forks and knives aren't plastic, et cetera. So that's not non-food item, but that's a B Corp. It just came to my head. Yeah. Now the, that type of... Uh, manufacturing where it's they're using plant materials to make things that were accustomed to them being plastic. It's a, that's a trend. That's an important, I hope we do. I hope we see a lot more of that. Yes. Well, thank you so much for your time, Mioka. And and most importantly for everything that you've done for the planet and for the people around you and making this world a, a better place. Appreciate you. Well, thank you, Corwin. Remember it takes all of us as consumers to change the food system certainly does. Have a great day. You too. Well, there you have it. Miyoko's plant-based legacy is a beautiful thing. I hope you enjoyed listening in. Please grab one of her cookbooks and follow her on YouTube. From all of us here at Ethical Food Group, thanks for listening. I'm Corwin Hebert, and I'll see you in the future.